Welcome back to the most accurate podcast here at 4 for 4 Football. As always, I'm your host, John Diggle, with a few special guests today for this very important episode on best ball strategy. First up, two weeks removed from having the projections out for everyone, it is none other than the man himself, John Paulson. John, how are you holding up? I'm doing all right. I just want everybody to know that I'm here to listen and learn and uh, have the occasional question. And I'm here to field any uh, questions on player takes or positional depth or whatever. But happy to be here. As a professional host, I have questions to get you involved. Don't worry. But you and I will likely step aside for this episode because we have two important people on that know much more about this topic than us. First up, of course, it is the director of DFS at 444 Football, TJ Hernandez. TJ, how's your offseason going? We haven't talked to you lately. It's going good, man. Um, I'm still quietly in these best ball streets, which we'll be talking about today. I've had lots of uh, underdog tournaments firing up, so I've just been uh, working with all of uh, Sam's tools to get ready for it. And who you mentioned there, last but not least, the director of analytics here for, for Sam Hoppin, which I know, Sam, you've already put out quite a few articles this offseason on best ball strategy. Yes, uh, introduced a new best ball draft curve yesterday sort of building off of some work that Mike Leone had done earlier this off season and, and taking it a step further looking at positional value for players so that was out yesterday got a an article coming out uh, about quarterback the quarterback position tomorrow uh, we can touch on that a little bit today and then just more stuff coming out in the coming weeks a quick reminder before we begin that the early bird sale at 44.com is going on through Memorial Day weekend. So there's not a better time with Paulson's projections going live last week. My best ball tiers beginning to run as of this recording and all of Sam and TJ's work we'll talk about today on the site for everyone. No better time to jump in for that sale price. And I want to begin everyone with the overall thought and strategy on when to draft your team in best ball. And that seems odd considering you can draft from April all the way to August. But Sam, I do think there is some strategy and understanding how ADP works when it comes to drafting immediately post-draft, after OTAs, and then once training camps begin ahead of week one. Yeah, I mean, there are we're going to see ADPs change drastically. We've already seen a bunch of ADPs change based on uh, positive injury reports based on sort of the, the fantasy football cognoscenti rallying around different players. And it's, I think it's early enough in the off season where, I mean, you don't, I, I think that the poster boy we use here is Anthony Richardson. He's already climbed, I think like 15 to 20 spots in ADP overall. And I think based on how much of BBM has filled, you're not necessarily at a huge disadvantage compared to, to those teams that may have gotten him a round or two later. There will be enough other teams that if his ADP stays the same or ADP rises, that at this point you'll be able to still capture some of that value, that, that ADP closing line value, if you will, and not necessarily need to, to worry about it. TJ, I know our own Justin Edwards put out an article on Wednesday morning on this very subject, when it is the best time to draft teams. But really, I think the overall thought is that, as Sam mentioned, 
while we're jostling to be ahead and behind of ADP, just kind of going with the flow until the final OTAs wrap up on June 15th and players go away for a month and then ADP corrects itself in that time. I really think that's when we're really trying to prioritize getting an edge and taking big picture stances those early months post-draft. And then we start fighting for more regular season prizes, understanding that August and September, ADP is practically corrected and maybe the edges are just not there anymore. Yeah, so I, I think about this um, a couple different ways. Um, one, I think we could take our biggest stances early in the offseason. I mean, if we're drafting 150 teams from now until the middle of September, or the second week of September, um, I, I'm not really thinking uh, too much about something like how much ownership I have of a player. Early on, I think these players that have either big gaps in initial ranking or players that can have huge movements in ADP, um, that are going to move up in ADP. I mean, I might be taking them in, uh, you know, 70 to 80% of drafts. If they fall players like, uh, Gino Smith, who we're way ahead of compared to ADP players like Tyler Higby, they're going so late that we can get them very often before that ADP corrects, like you said. Um, but another thing that I'm thinking about is we do have, uh, data that says, teams that are drafted later typically perform better in these tournaments that go uh, that are drafting from May until September. So even though we're going to get a lot of ADP value uh, this time of year or around these these very big dates, I think we also need to be thinking about how much we're drafting. I, I don't I'm not necessarily spreading out if I'm drafting 150 teams spreading them out evenly from now until August. I, I might be doing uh, like a smaller portion of my drafts from now until middle of July and then July through September uh, doing the majority of my drafts still because we do have more information. Even though we're getting less value on our ADP, um, our teams are just typically going to perform better. From your study, Sam, has there been a parameter as to how far you can reach when it is considered reaching? Like, are we supposed to stay within a round, for example, of ADP and thinking that is value? Or even like 12 to 15 picks early, is that actually not considered value? That's considered reaching. I think it's, so, so there's a big part of this too that I think it has gotten a lot more light is sort of not, one, not thinking about draft values linear, linearly in that going up 12 spots in ADP from pick 13 to one is drastically different than going up 12 spots from pick 150 to 138, right? So I think at the, so sort of to piggyback off of some of the stuff that TJ said is taking stances on guys in the last three to four rounds is more important, I think, than taking stances on guys that are going the first three rounds, because those unless there's a major injury to one of those guys in which his ADP is going to be nothing, there's not really going to be a ton of change in those players. I mean, uh, Jalen Watto might go from 17th overall to 21st overall, but you're still going to have to spend a second round pick on him to draft him. So your exposure to him is not really going to change. It's really only going to change based on the draft slot that you have uh, in, in the opportunities you have to pick him so anecdotally it's it's more about 
again, you want to play the ADP game, right? Like we talk about that a ton in that there's no certainty that one guy is going to get taken if his ADP is 60 and you're at pick 63. But I think, again, trying to think about how how much you are reaching relative to, I guess, more of a percent difference reach, if you will, um, and not being as concerned about reaching an ADP in the last, again, probably five plus rounds of drafts. There there was an art or a, a study I think I saw on Twitter and I'm blanking on who's, who put it together, but basically saying that the first 10 rounds of drafts is really like the most important part of it. And that's, that's what you want to be focusing on. Everything after that is for lack of a better word, a crapshoot, right? I mean, there's being unique and not having the same um, final round players as everyone, things like that, that you want to consider that. No, of course you don't want to reach, you know, three rounds on a player, but if it's, if you really have a strong player stance, or strong stance on that player, it's also not going to kill you at that stage in the draft. And I know Paulson, when TJ speaks of finding early edges, when Sam speaks of having a take later on in the draft, I know right now you are very high on Sam Howell and Washington Stacks. Well, yeah, he's QB 30 off the board. You can get McLaurin later than you would normally get him. I think last year he was going in the third or fourth round. Now he's going later. Dotson is going pretty late, and those are his two top targets. So to me, that jumps out as a great value stack if you're high on Howell and his upside there as a runner, as a passer. TJ, it's become a running joke now as well about week 17 and stacking for the playoffs. But as we know, it's still very important and like in layman's terms, all you have to really do is tell someone, think ahead to week 17. You don't have any idea what's going to happen. But what we do know are the two teams playing each other. They can't take that away from us. But uh, go ahead and dive into why that is so important to stack for not only weeks 15 through 17, but more importantly, that championship round. Yeah, well, in short, that's where all the money's at, right? So, uh, that too, way, yeah, yeah that, that's that's really why we're talking about this. If we're talking about, and we're mainly talking about Best Ball Mania Four here, um, but there are some other sites that that run some some season long um, tournaments, DraftKings, and Drafters is a little different because it's um, it, it's it's cumulative points. But uh, the reason we talk about that, all the money's in week seventeen, and what gets lost in people saying, "Well, you're wasting time," or "or you're you're not optimizing properly." Um, when you're you're stacking for week 17, um, we're not just like blindly looking at these matchups and saying like, okay, I'm I'm stacking uh, the the Bills and the Bengals as early as possible. I'm going uh, I'm going uh, Stephon Diggs, T Higgins, and Josh Allen with my first three picks. Um, that's not really what we're trying to do. We're trying to think about how much should we be stacking, when should we be stacking, how much uh, draft capital should we be stacking for these week 17 games. So the concept is very similar to DFS. Um, if we just think about week 17 and to a lesser extent, week 15 to 16, it turns into a 470-man tournament. We're trying to come in first place. The best way to do that is to uh, maximize our upside. If a game goes off and we have exposure to that game, that's going to give us the best chance to climb that leaderboard and come in first place. We also need to be unique when we do that. Um, what we've typically seen is that uh, 
like Sam talked about, we don't want to be reaching in these early rounds. Sam was talking about ADP value, but that also comes to stacking. If you if you're reaching, uh, say over a round in let's just call it the single digit rounds, just to complete a a team stack or a game stack, you're probably giving up too much ADP value and um canceling out the value that you get from these stacks. What we've typically seen is that if you let these stacks fall to you, um, you're, you're going to get value from it in the early rounds. But then later on in the draft, completing these stacks with say like a wide receiver three or a wide receiver four to go with your Josh Allen. We're, we're typically pretty bad at projecting who that fourth pass catcher or thir- even third pass catcher is going to be on a team. Um, but if, again, just say a Josh Allen does go off and he could bring along uh, Khalil Shakir with him uh, late in the season, that's not only going to be unique, but that's going to be a player that probably just didn't advance through a lot. Um, but if he goes off late in the year, he's really going to benefit you. Uh, another thing that, that I think uh, people don't talk about enough is how much should we be stacking in terms of like how big our game stack should be. Typically, it's going to be more favorable to have more smaller stacks, whether it be team stacks or game stacks, than to just be loading up on huge stacks. If you have five players from a week 17 game or four or five players from one team stack, that's going to be less valuable than having a lot of small team stacks. Uh, a quarterback with just one or two of his pass catchers and just two or three players from that game. You need to hit perfectly, but that's why we're volume drafting over the course of 150 drafts. We hope that we have enough combinations that it could carry us through these playoff rounds. Do you have any thoughts on how many, not combinations, but just players playing against one another, game stacks in week 17, we should be targeting? Because I've heard it everything from at least six players to at least 10. Um, if we look at what we've seen from these final round teams and teams that have done good in the final round, um, I, I think overall the, the number of players you want stacked, I, I think, you know, somewhere <clears throat> half of your roster, at least like eight to 10 of your players involved in a game stack again from a single game, probably only want two or three players because we want to be able to hit in multiple games um, in that week 17. Hopefully we have, you know, two of the biggest scoring games. If we have four players from those two games, it's going to be um, very good. But, uh, you know, not necessarily like five players from one game. Uh, spread it out. Half your, If half of your uh, roster can be stacked in some capacity, you're probably building correctly. Sam, I also know you have thoughts on how regular season scoring correlates with playoff teams and playoff stacks. Yeah, so the uh, uh, BBM4 has a a new payout structure where they're, they're paying a bunch of people for the highest regular season point totals. And so there, there was some question early on, well, is there a way to... I guess optimized for the the regular season and there's really no big difference in teams that are able to advance and not finishing in this top one one and a half percent of teams that are paying <coughs> excuse me teams that are getting paid out in the regular season if you're in the top one and a half percent in regular season point scorers you're nearly guaranteed to make the playoffs i think you know you think about the ways that you might i guess sacrifice regular season 
points for the playoffs is with injured players or suspended players, whether it's uh, Jamison Williams, Kyler Murray, guys like that, where you know you're going to have a chunk of the regular season that you're not going to get points from them. But if you are able to advance that team, it is going to lower the ownership of those players in the playoffs. So I think, you know, with, with all of this, it's important to know that like a lot of these things are tiebreakers too, right? Like they shouldn't be like, you shouldn't be drafting chiefs and Bengals players because they're playing each other. Like you should be playing, drafting them because they're really good players. But when you get to the end of the draft, if you have a, um, a chase Higgins burrow stack, if you're deciding between Rasheed Rice and Adam Thielen, it's probably better to go with Rasheed Rice because you have that sort of added layer of the the game stack in there. I think another part of week 17 specifically that you want to think about is what are different ways to attack the game? So like the Falcons and Bears play each other. They're two of the most run-heavy teams, or at least they were last year. It's sort of expected to be that way this year. Do you try and sort of go against the grain um, and stack some of the pass catchers, whether it's Drake London and DJ Moore, stuff like that, to sort of get leverage across the teams that have Bijan and any of the Bears running backs? So thinking about it that way, too, to get add some uniqueness that, I mean, the tournament is what, 670,000 entrants now. So there are going to inherently be more sort of duplicate lineups, at least through the first, you know, 10 rounds or so. So just thinking about those types of things, I think is, is important and, and leveraging some unique ways to mix in these correlations. I, can I jump in real quick? I, I mean, and I think what Sam said is if you are kind of letting these things fall, like the, these game stack opportunities fall to you, um, it, it, in a way it kind of makes drafting easier because I, I think the average drafter can get caught up. Um, we can get caught up in some areas in the draft, especially in, in these like middle to later rounds where we might not have a strong player take. So instead of just blindly clicking a players, it does give us some guidance. Last night I was in a draft where I started uh, Kelsey and Mahomes, and then I got to the, the 11th round and I had, I needed a receiver and I'm sitting there with, Oda Beckham, Jacoby Myers, Tyler Boyd, Jonathan Mingo, and Sky Moore. I, I don't really have a strong take on that group, but with that chief stack to start, Tyler Boyd sitting there completes the game stack. It makes it very easy to make those decisions. So when you get comfortable drafting and those decisions pop up, it kind of does uh, like expedite your decision making, especially in these fast drafts. And when you both discuss uniqueness, I think about two things. One, Far too often, I still think people treat best ball tournaments like DFS. The issue is that DSS still has salary cap limits, whereas best ball, mostly everyone's drafted. So I'm trying to get these edges, not only for the regular season, but for week 17 that no one else is thinking about in players that are less than 20, 25% drafted. Like if everyone's going towards Chiefs Bengals, I think about, okay, Patrick Mahomes stacks with Travion Williams, just in case Joe Mixon is injured. I think about Marquez Callaway with Russell Wilson and Broncos stacks, just in case 
uh, Sean Payton brought his favorite player over, same as Adam Troutman, for a good reason. Uh, and that goes on for Dwayne McBride, for example, or Ty Chandler, whoever you think could be backing up Alexander Madison if Dalvin Cook were cut. Those are the little edges I try to look for. Also, and this might be a bad take, this is what this is something that Hayden Winks theorized last year, and it actually came true in Week 17, that maybe we should be targeting indoor games, given that the winter weather plays a major factor for all fantasy football in December. And this year, we have four indoor games that I keep in mind every time I start stacking for Week 17, and that is the Lions at the Cowboys, the Packers at the Vikings, the Raiders at the Colts, and the Titans at the Texans. So that's just another little thing I sprinkle in to try to get an edge when I'm stacking for the playoffs. TG, I want to come right back to you, though, as we start talking about positional allocation and when and how many of these players to draft. Because for quarterbacks, I know that the past three best ball manias has practically defined for us what we should be doing and how many quarterbacks we should be drafting in best ball mania four. Yeah, the the uh, discussion on how many quarterbacks to take is it's pretty um, closed at this point. It's two to three quarterbacks. And uh, with every single position, it comes down to uh, how much draft capital we're spending on that position to decide how many players we should be taking in that position. The big discussion on, on quarterbacks now, is, it's kind of been, we've seen mixed results between taking an early quarterback um, paired with a, a late round quarterback or waiting to take a couple mid round quarterbacks or, or even a late round quarterback approach. The one constant across all the best ball mania tournaments has been that a, a true late round quarterback approach, like three quarterbacks say after round 11 or 12 um, has been pretty abysmal. It's been really hard to succeed like that. What we've seen has been a shift in how dominant early round quarterbacks has been, but what that's caused to happen this year is we're seeing quarterback ADPs inflated to a level that we've never seen before. Um, so the decision this year is going to be how willing are we to bite on these quarterbacks that are going in this, like multiple quarterbacks going in the second round. I, my sense is that a strategy that we've, seen in the past multiple mid-round quarterbacks which didn't work last year but has worked in the past I, I think we're probably going to see that shift a little bit more because we're going to have like these um these justin fields types um in, in the middle rounds where josh allen and patrick mahomes are going you know in the second round um not only that these combinations are, are becoming very obvious I, I i mentioned mahomes travis kelsey I, I feel like that combination is going to be so popular because it's so easy to get um that that it might encourage us to go down to the second tier of these let's call them like the, the top i don't know eight or nine quarterbacks this big elite tier waiting on the second tier instead of forcing the the josh allens and the patrick mahomes and what you're referring to is Jalen Hurts, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes being top 20 picks right now on underdog, even though they were only the 10th, 11th, and 12th quarterbacks to average 24 points per game in the last decade. Uh, four of those 12 performances in the last 10 years, by the way, that came during the pandemic when the refs swallowed their whistles and football was made great again. Sam, I know you also have looked into avoiding stacking quarterbacks for bye weeks, given that some people may think they're getting an edge by taking two quarterbacks and ignoring the fact that, let's just say, for example, these two players happen to both be on bye in week nine. 
Yeah, so it's it's one of those things where it's again like you know you're going to be taking a zero at the quarterback position in that one week, but you're also optimizing the scoring you can get from the quarterback position, the high scoring position in fantasy football every single week. So there's, I think it's one of those things where, again, it, it builds into the uniqueness aspect of things. If if two quarterbacks have the same buy, people are going to be afraid of having them both on one team. So if you're able to get that team through to the playoffs, you're going to be that much more unique there. You know, we've seen instances all the time where um, quarterbacks just have a dud or you just don't get anything from the quarterback that, excuse me, the quarterback position that it, it doesn't really make that much of a difference to the season long scoring overall. I think one way to, one way that I would caution against that is doing it with two players that you're investing heavily in, right? So you don't want to, I don't think you want to draft, I don't, the bye weeks are not my, my forte right now, but Patrick Mahomes and uh, let's say Justin Fields, where if you're taking both of those and risking the the potential that I have a zero, where both of them probably have as high of a weekly ceiling, that's probably not as, as great as taking Patrick Mahomes and a Geno Smith, uh, should they have the same buy, but it's all about opportunity costs, right? If you're, if you're spending your last three picks on, on all quarterbacks that have the same buy, you're, you're going to increase your weekly ceiling because you can get a spike week from any one of those three quarterbacks. But there's also like a very realistic outcome where all three of them crap the bed in, you know, week nine, and you're only left with seven points. So it's not that drastic of a, a difference. So it's something to consider. Obviously, like you never want to take a zero, but I think for the people who are max entering and who have an ability to play around with some of these unique strategies, doing that is, again, one way that you're going to differentiate yourself because of how few people are actually doing it. And not to throw the hard questions at your door, Paulson, but I know right now a popular QB3 option is taking a stance on San Francisco situation under center. So you don't have to answer all of it, but with Brock Purdy reportedly throwing at OTAs beginning next week, Trey Lance, of course, just 430 career dropbacks going back to his freshman year at North Dakota State, and Sam Darnold reportedly being the best, quote, thrower of the football the 49ers have ever had, unquote, at camp. Where do you stand on one of these three players? Yeah, I, and I'll answer that question. Um, as they were talking, I was thinking about the quarterback strategy. I just wanted to throw this out there that, you know, two guys that jump out as really good uh, middle round values um, are Geno Smith and Daniel Jones. Uh, Jones is going QB 14, Smith's going QB 16. I think they both finished top six last year. Nothing's really changed negatively for either player. So, you could get one or both, uh, eighth, ninth, tenth round, pair them together, whatever. On the on the 49ers front, my assumption is that if Brock Purdy, based on everything I've read, uh, if Brock Purdy is healthy, he's the starter. Uh, I believe Lynch said as much. Um, and this other stuff that's happening at camp, I don't think it matters a whole lot based on what Purdy did last year. He's going to have to be have a setback or be behind or not look good for, I think that pecking order to, to change. So 
you know, I, I've got him missing a couple of games in the projections, and that's why he's at, uh, I think, QB 24 uh, or 25. I did uh, run the numbers just if he missed one game like all the other quarterbacks are expected to, that he bumps him up to QB 20. Um, he's not much of a runner, but uh, obviously a really highly efficient passer in that uh, Cal Shanahan system. I think and- – sorry, just to add on to this – I think you need to think about how much these guys ADP are going to change. If we get news that they are for sure, the starter, like Brock Purdy is currently going as quarterback 28 Trey Lance as quarterback 25, um, both after pick 170. And so how much higher are they really going to move? Obviously the one who is not the starter is probably going to drop quite a bit, but how much higher are they going to move? Like you Paulson said, he's going to, uh, he might go up to, to quarterback 20, but are you taking him above, you know, guys like Matthew Stafford, like potentially Bryce Young? I mean, these guys weren't incredible fantasy quarterbacks last year in the games that they played. Trey Lance is a little bit different, different because we don't have as big of a sample size. But last year, I think pretty scored uh, – What's the number here? 11.8 fantasy points per game. So it, like, it wasn't that great. Like, yes, he's the quarterback and, and they got a lot of yak and stuff like that, but it's, it's something to think about of, are you really going to be missing out on the quote unquote ADP value? Like we mentioned, if a month from now they get announced as a starter, I don't think so. It's not a, it's not going to be a prohibitive cost where he's going from, being drafted in the 16th round to the sixth round. Now he's going to go from being drafted in the 16th round to maybe the 12th round. In in a tournament situation, um, can I just say that the Niners as they stand right now might be one of the easiest fades in terms of teams that we're looking to stack. They have the, the earliest um, a third pass catcher is going in terms of ADP in all, across all the teams. Uh, Brandon Ayuk is go, being drafted as their third pass catcher, still going in the fifth to sixth round. And that's in addition to having the running back who is going anywhere from the first to the third pick in the draft. So like, not only do we not know who the quarterback is, even though we have a pretty good idea, it's Purdy, but like we're asking their skill players to all hit uh like top five round adp value that that's pretty crazy for a team that's gonna uh dink and dunk and give their running back like all the touches you know i could just if i could just add on 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 the 49ers uh i mean i think it was a few weeks ago that trey lance was going qb 14 john and we were both scratching our respective heads as to why drafters were that bullish on him and on purdy you know i think you're Sam, you were looking at the per game averages on the maybe on the four for four site, but he's got some low low numbers there from some brief uh, appearances earlier in the year. Uh, over the last six games where he played at least eighty percent of the snaps, he averaged seventeen point six fantasy points. That's pretty significant. He had two, at least two passing touchdowns in those six games. Uh, so you know he doesn't add anything really as a runner. He did have one rushing touchdown in that in that stretch, but. Uh, pretty, pretty efficient passer. And it's hard to ask him to sustain a touchdown rate that was higher than MVP Patrick Mahomes last year. So that's my really concern for him. Moving on to running backs though, now that we've settled two or three quarterbacks suffice and you should always stack them. 
game stacking for week 17 in particular, even if you have three. Sam, the running back dead zone becomes more prominent, in my opinion, with every passing year. It does allow us to continue to utilize different strategies, whether it be uh, zero RB, fragile RB, anchor RB, whatever you want to call it. But really what's happened is that, yet again, wide receivers continue being pushed up. That's why we have 14 universally going in the t- in the first two rounds now. And so, like what happened last year in zero RB being the answer, what was really going on was running backs got pushed down. And so, workhorses, or maybe they weren't perceived as workhorses, but workhorses then dropped to basically rounds 5 through 11. And I think that's happening again, where running backs continue to get pushed down further, and thus it does seem legitimate that the dead zone yet again got stronger. But your thoughts on the running back dead zone this year? Yeah, I, you know, Justin Herzig, who won the inaugural best ball mania a couple of years ago, uh, responded to one of my tweets saying, why does there have to be a running back dead zone? And I don't, I don't necessarily think there has to be one, just that there has been one the last couple of years. And I think drafters are probably overreacting a little bit too much to that notion to the point where they're not sort of negative EV picks where they're going right now. As of right now, the running back 10, who was uh, Ramondre Stevenson, is going a full round later than where the running back 10 was going last year, which was in the second round. So you're getting essentially an equivalent upside, but at a full round later. So I think it's, again, the, the opportunity cost is a big part of it. I think the other question is, is the dead zone based off of where a, a running back is going relative to his position. So does it matter, you know, is it based on the RB 14 through 22 picks or is it based on overall ADP? Because if it's based on running back position rank, then it's not going to matter. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's not going to matter where you're drafting them. It's just that those concentration of players have sort of the most level of uncertainty about their upside while also having probably a tremendous amount of downside as well. So the running back positions being shifted back quite a bit, like you said, especially in the early rounds, like they're, they're being pushed back almost a full round. And then once you get to round sort of seven through 10 is where you get similar value as you had in years past. So I think it makes those players again the the second third round or third fourth fifth round running backs slightly more valuable than they were in in years past but it's it's one of those things where these shouldn't be hard and fast rules of oh i can't draft you know running back in the fifth round it's which running back are you getting in the fifth round what is his sort of upside and downside case and adding all that context in as well TJ, your thoughts on when to draft running backs? Um, well, first to piggyback on, on what Sam said, uh, the um, the idea of the dead zone and opportunity costs, I think, is really the big thing we should be thinking about. If if we, the, the reason we've had a dead zone is because we get into the situation where like these low end RB twos are kind of forced to be RB 
low-end RB2s just because we don't have any other options, right? Like they're hopefully projected volume, a lot of time on a bad offense, um, but there are a lot of downside cases. Like take a, a Rashad right, right, right now who's going as the RB25. Um, in the past where he would be going somewhere around um, – who's going like a Drake London. You were sacrificing a Drake London to get a Rashad White. Now we're maybe only sacrificing a Jahan Dotson to get him. You might be more willing to take the risk on those players. Um, and to answer your question, what that's going to do is it's going to um, kind of dictate when and how many players at running back we should be taking. Uh, what is still is going to hold true is that no matter what, the shift in the running back ADP landscape is going to be. We still find that usually five to six running backs is the range we should be falling in. Um, and what we have seen is that the in best ball tournament specifically, we have to always keep in mind, this is best ball all season tournament strategy, not redraft two strategies have been consistently effective in best ball mania. And this it goes across whether we're looking at average points contributed, whether it's advance rates to the first round, second round, or championship of the tournaments, two strategies have been pretty consistent. And that's some form of anchor running back. That means a running back in the first two rounds combined with uh, four to five running backs, say after round six, or a zero running back strategy where we commit six or seven running back slots. That's a, your first running back after round five. Um, I, one thing people have done poorly when they've drafted zero running back in these tournaments is not selected enough running backs. If you're coming out with only four or five running backs in a zero running back strategy, um, that is probably not correct. Uh, and then another thing that the landscape allows us to do right now the, the way we're being able to draft is some of these um roster constructions that might have been harder to complete in the past couple of years something like a two quarterback seven running back seven wide receiver two tight end build the way the running back landscape is falling right now those types of builds are easier to complete and have been very successful maybe we should be more willing to fall into some of those um builds that don't fall into the um the the accepted like most successful uh, roster constructions. I also think people struggle in assuming they are correct. If I were to start, for instance, a Nick Chubb, Josh Jacobs in back-to-back -back at the turn in round two and three, I then need to assume that those are my RB one and two, and in my opinion, not rush for my RB three, thinking that that's a flex since I've already made that decision, whether I believe it or not. And so thus, since wide receiver scoring – Although it's more consistent later on, uh, running backs give more spike weeks later on in the later rounds, wide receiver scoring becomes more flat, but I can still pile on wide receivers at that point and wait till round 13, 14 for my next running back since I have two already and I'm not trying to flex them. So that's the way I view it. Uh, Sam, any thoughts on how many running backs you've viewed as the optimal strategy? I mean, again, it, it, all, it, it all depends on it fluctuates on on when you're taking them and stuff like that. I do think, you know, you 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 guys all make great points. Is if you're investing a lot in the running back position early on, you need to assume you're right. And I think, you know, we talked about quarterbacks with with bye weeks. Um, 
if you're taking the sort of fragile running back approach and investing, let's say your first three picks in into running backs, you want to make sure that those bye weeks do not overlap because you have two spots at the running back position you need to fill. You want to make sure you're maximizing. You're assuming that they are not getting injured. That's really what's going to make or break your team. Because if one of them gets injured, your team is essentially kaput at that point. Um, and then looking at, again, where other position positional value becomes more flat. So if you are going with a zero RB approach, what is you know sort of the right place to attack running back versus filling in your your second or third quarterback, your second or third tight end, stuff like that. Um, and then making sure you're adding on, I think, you know, making sure you have at with zero running back, the right mix of running back archetypes too. Like you, I don't think you want to take five handcuffs because that relies on five other players potentially getting hurt ahead of them. Take two handcuffs and two, change of pace guys who have the ability to get some consistent touches throughout the year. That's a more of an, an anecdotal thought, but it's, it's about sort of maximizing your floor when you go with zero running back, because you're expecting the ceiling to be filled with the wide receiver position. And Paulson, I know one player you think who has suffered and incorrectly been ignored if only because people have pushed wide receivers off the board is Josh Jacobs, who is still going in the third round right now. Yeah, this is a, you know, I was just looking through the the running back uh, ADP and this is about as appealing a list of players and ADP combined that I have seen uh, in my many years playing fantasy. Uh, not only Josh Jacobs going pick 27, Derrick Henry going pick 26, the workloads for those respective players. If you read my uh, running back uh, rankings breakdown, I go through the first few paragraphs about how we follow the touches at running back. And it's not necessarily trying to ascertain which team is going to have the best offense or which team or which player is most talented, but it's all touches that or a lot of it's touches that drives fantasy value. Uh, I think, those two players, even if you're looking at the top 10 or so, have the highest or among the highest expected workloads, uh, consistent workloads that we can you know expect going into this season. Uh, you can get those players at the two, three turn, early third round, uh, extremely appealing. And then you get into this dead zone. And I don't know, maybe you guys can define for me what the actual rounds of the dead zone are supposed to be. But, you know, Najee Harris going pick 39 with the Steelers uh, really making offensive line moves to shore up their running game. And, you know, he's probably going to be back to being a little bit more productive in a, in a high workload there and Pittsburgh, Kenneth Walker going uh, RB 15. I'm not quite as high on that with the, you know, the new rookie there, but you know, Aaron Jones and Miles Sanders, you can get them in the fifth, fifth round. Uh, Miles Sanders uh, supposedly going to catch a lot of passes, a lot more passes this year, get back to his rookie season where he had quite a few catches uh, Joe Mixon going RB20, pick 63. You know, we, we thought that he might be uh, cut, and they basically let Samaj P. Ryan walk, and Mixon is looking like he's going to be the RB1 in Cincinnati. That offensive line has uh, improved over the last two years. They spent a lot of money in free agency. 
Dalvin Cook is a really talented back going RB21. We know the reason why he's going there, but does he, if he gets cut, does he land uh, somewhere uh, good? Uh, I can't imagine he'd be out on as a free agent as long as Leonard Fournette and Ezekiel Elliott have. Uh, Cam Akers, tons and tons of touches down the stretch last year, looked pretty good. Uh, Rashad White, James Conner, we're expecting big workloads for both of those players. David Montgomery stepping into a uh, 10-plus touchdown type role there with Jamal Williams out of the way in a very productive offense for Detroit. And I'm just saying all this because, you know, I'm, I'm landed on Montgomery here at pick 87, um, and you could get him. This is the this is he's, he's filling that role that that led to the most rushing touchdowns by a player last year with Jamal Williams. And you can get him in the early eighth round. So like you really can wait on running back or do one running back early and then wait on, you know, do RB two by committee and really get some talented appealing uh, workloads and situations here in the fifth through uh, eighth rounds. To play devil's advocate. I mean, I think you can, you just presented the upside case for, for all those guys. They obviously have a downside case, which is why they're being drafted there. If we knew Joe Mixon wasn't, at risk of getting cut or, or traded or whatever, he'd be probably a third round pick. Same with with Dalvin Cook. So I think there is there is some risk you need to decide with that. And I think you know for some of those players, the downside can outweigh the upside. With you know depending on what it is. I mean, you mentioned David Montgomery there. They also drafted a running back in the first round with their first pick. So who's to say that Jameer Gibbs doesn't step into both of those roles. I'll say that. I don't think he's, I don't think he's going to step into that. I mean, I understand what you're saying. I mean, there are downsides and this is why they're going here, but they're also going around later than they normally would with those downsides. Right. right. So it, what I, what I'm saying is that that downside is a lot more uh, palatable and I don't, you know, like for a guy like Mixon, like, I don't know what is going to happen here. You know, I'll, I'll, the Bengals aren't going to cut him. I don't think unless something weird happens with his off the field stuff, he's going to be the RB one for the Bengals again. And he's going 10 picks or 10, you know, positional picks later than he should. He should be an RB 10. If you, if you knew that he was going to be starting for the Bengals this year, because unlike Dalvin Cook's situation, cook has already been offered a renegotiation of his contract. He's just refusing to renegotiate it. So that's the thing. That's how we keep taking this, perhaps $9 million that he can save by cutting him down to the June 1st deadline. But Mixon, it seemed like for all his off-field issues and to save the team money for a T. Higgins extension, he was initially going to be cut. But then he basically survived the entire draft by only fifth-round Chase Brown being added and Trevion Williams being re-signed to a one-year deal. So it has flipped for Joe Mixon, but Dalvin Cook, like there is still that hanging fruit there that suggests he's still going to be out. And so, Sam, I think that's what you're talking about. It's still taking on that risk or deciding when you personally, the listener at home personally, wants to take on that risk. And I, one more thing, and I, and, I, and I know TJ's got something else to say here, is when you are deciding between all of these players and especially the ones that have upside and downside, it's important to understand why they might have upside if it is just an injury thing or, or you need an injury to someone else to to provide upside that's a lot different than they could you know they're in a split committee and they could start 
getting the lion's share of the backfield touches. And so if you're looking, if you want to more predictably try to find guys who are going to rise, it's it's not the, I'm struggling to come up with an example off the top of my head, but it, it, it's not necessarily the guys that, that are handcuffs. It's the guys that could work their way throughout training cap, camp into a larger role that we see. I mean, you mentioned, uh, Daigle, the, the in, instance with Dalvin Cook and like the June 1st stuff. June 1st is a week away now, so we might have a Gosh, resolution. you're right. I even forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. That I snuck know. Up. So we might have a resolution on that by by this time next week. Now, that's not a guarantee, but and I'm not saying you should avoid Dalvin Cook in the next week, but once you have we have that level of information, there's you'll have more information, I, I guess. Um, from from a macro perspective, I would say if if a listener was asking just for a blanket take on how we should be approaching running backs this year, and as JP said, defining the running back dead zone, um, the caveat here is if these ADPs remain the same, if running backs remain pushed down, uh, I, I think looking back at what we had defined as the as the dead zone in the past, which has been a combination of these uh, these low-end RB2s going in this like third to fourth round range, I would say for the most part, we can draft as as if there isn't a running back dead zone this year. The, I think the risk of these low-end RB2s is kind of baked into their ADP right now. Um, and we can, in, in best ball mania specifically, stick to um, these, uh, these concepts of paying attention to player archetypes, paying attention to roster construction, paying attention to draft capital and um, building our team around those, um, those ideas. So far two to three quarterbacks and lineups with all players stacked game stacks, ideally for week 17 and being pragmatic at running back with five to seven and understanding that the RB three is really what you're focusing on and drafting as if you're right. Not getting too hot in RB3 if you start two running backs early and vice versa if you happen to start running back later. Wide receiver Sam is where it gets really interesting though because again, they've been pushed up draft boards because the highest scoring wide receivers are obviously have the highest ADPs and scoring becomes lower and flatter as the rounds move on. But at the same time, it's arguably a rule of thumb to draft a wide receiver every other round just to make sure we have enough to put in our lineups and flex spots since the scoring does get lower in the later rounds. So your overall strategy on wide receivers. My overall strategy, draft them. It, it, it is very it is very difficult, especially this year. I mean, basically since the middle of last summer, you know, we've seen the wide receiver position get pushed up so much. And we're starting to see, you know, I think, for me, there again, this sort of goes back to my last point about ADP change predictability, if you will, is trying to think about which wide receivers might rise in ADP. It's it's going to be guys like rookies or second year wide receivers, um, potentially guys in new places that get you know some buzz. They've got chemistry with the quarterback stuff like that. I think I think that's where you want to focus your, I guess, sort of your wide receiver energy on is attacking the right guys that can can make a move up draft board so that you're not necessarily changing like the number of receivers you're getting, but 
that you're getting guys and, and combinations of receivers that others uh, didn't necessarily do. I think it is difficult. I think with the wide receiver position to TJ's point is you need to be very, what's the word I'm looking for? Very restrained or very disciplined with how many you are taking, because if you take six with your first six picks, there are going to be wide receivers at the end of your draft that are past ADP that are sexy breakout candidates, but you don't, you don't need that. Like, yes, you, you know, maybe push it to seven, like that's fine. Grab one at the end of end of your draft, but, and this is across all positions, but it's about like making sure you know the level of investment you have in these in these players and knowing when the fall off is is actually going to come at wide receiver yeah um i i mean a couple like loose rules of thumb you should be it's pretty hard not to come out of the first 10 rounds with like four or five wide receivers but if somehow you're not doing that you're probably doing yourself a really big disservice i was actually going uh, to say the first seven rounds to not yeah, have so four that, wide receivers yeah so my my next point was going to be that we have seen very consistent data that robust wide receiver, meaning three to four wide receivers in the first four to five rounds, has been exponentially better, whether it be, again, points contributed, advance rate in any of the rounds. Robust wide receiver has been consistently better than any kind of robust running back strategy. Um, and that wide receivers have performed so well in the early rounds that if you do come away with kind of the, the tipping point is if you come away with say six wide receivers in the first nine rounds, if your draft falls that way for whatever reason, you can make the case. And this is a, a very rare extreme build where you can stop at six wide receivers. If you have six in the first round, you can, and that's not going to fall into our typical roster construction strategies. Um, but if your draft does fall that way, you, you can uh, stop there. The other thing I will say is that, um, Later round wide receivers is kind of where we go back into those stacking discussions. I, I think most of my late round late round wide receivers um, decisions are based on some kind of game stack or team uh, stack. Like I'm not just like unless I have some crazy strong take on on a late round wide receiver, which it's pretty hard to do. I'm pretty much matching up those 15th through 18th round round wide receivers with some kind of stacking opportunity. And I think that goes back to what Sam was saying in drafting is for right. Like, yes, the six wide receivers is definitely okay, but you have to also understand whether you start out strong and the ADP you've invested in those six as opposed to taking six and one or two of them coming after round 10. That's really what we're trying to avoid. Um, I also, as we seek out those round 17 and 18 players that probably won't even play. I also just try to correlate it with my quarterbacks most of the time. I have no idea if that's a, that's a good strategy or not, but it just seems like since those late round players, we're looking for points. Like we're looking them to breathe on an NFL field at some point. Uh, then maybe I can get a slight EV, a slight edge, if I were to also stack those not drafted players with my quarterback and hope for the best for week 17. Yeah, I mean, going back to what you said, like, do we do we really know if um, I don't know the difference between Deontay Hardy and Matt Collins in the last round? Like, we're we're really throwing a dart, right? So we might as well match it up. If you know, if you have a 
I don't know if you have Desmond Ritter for whatever reason for like it, just throw in a back Collins because if they go off they're they're going to go off together somehow. If I could add something, the like typically my draft strategy for just a typical twelve team draft is I like to try to find real world wide receiver ones in the middle rounds. That's been a very successful strategy for me, and you know all roads lead to Keenan Allen and Tyler Lockett and, and players like that. And I think this year is a you could do that. You could continue to do that with Keenan Allen going late fourth round, Lockett going pick 68, um, Deontay Johnson going pick 77. These are really talented uh, players, route runners, uh, maybe varying levels of uh, offensive, you know, offensive uh, quarterbacks and uh, potent offenses. And, you know, I think Terry McLaurin falls into that category as well at pick 50. But just kind of thinking back to the running back discussion, we can now find real-world RB1s with big touch projections like a Cam Akers who had 25, 23, something like that, touches the last three or four games, went over 100 yards all three games late last year, looked a lot better. We can get him with pick 76. So maybe things have flipped a little bit here, um, and we can now invest more draft capital in these early receivers uh, and find those touches in those middle rounds. I mean, I think I'm looking at my draft strategy this year, and it might be it might be flipping a little bit where I'm looking at those Miles Sanders and those Aaron Jones and those uh, Cam Akers in the fifth through seventh round, and I'm going to be loading up on the, the Justin Jeffersons and the Cooper Cups, et cetera, in the first second round. Yeah, and to JP's point, like looking at that that specific tier of wide receivers is super interesting. If we look at like, if you're in a spot where you're looking at Tyler Lockett, um, Deontay Johnson, or Kadarius Tony, like some players might be like, oh, I like Kadarius Tony better because he's on the Chiefs. I would say that even if you're like kind of close on all those guys, you still have a chance to get the quarterbacks of Deontay Johnson and Tyler Lockett later, whereas um, Patrick Mahomes is already gone. So even if you like you, if you don't have Patrick Mahomes already in best ball mania, like at least give yourself a chance to complete a stack later. Katerius Tony is giving you that shot. Also to Paulson's point, as I wrote in my quarterback best ball tiers live on the site. Now Herbert, only 23% of his dropbacks last year came with both Mike Williams and Keenan Allen on the field. And on those dropbacks, Herbert led the league in completion rate. Moving on to tight end, the hellscape of fantasy football. I want to start with how many to draft TJ. And I think usually we come to the conclusion of two for a strong build. If we have a top five, top six tight end as our leader or three to four at the very end, understanding that it's Travis Kelsey and everyone else. Yeah. The uh, results on tight end have been um, can, can and have been very skewed by a single player last year. And three years ago, uh, Travis Kelsey really skewed the early round numbers. Whereas two years ago, Mark Andrews single handedly skewed the middle round numbers. Um, What we do have data on, is what we probably shouldn't be doing. Um, if we're drafting uh, early round tight end, the numbers pretty strongly show us that spending draft capital on even another middle round tight end is pretty detrimental. Like if we're drafting that high end tight end, we need them to go off. And if they don't go off, we're probably dead anyway. That middle round tight end isn't going to save us. Um, one thing that has been pretty consistent is that um, if you aren't going to draft an elite tight end, um, 
not just like blindly waiting for a, a late round tight end, like those, those later to middle round tight ends, you could still come away with two or three. Um, but the, the thing that has really stood out is if you wait until the late rounds, um, one extreme build that people might be overlooking. And again, if you're, when I say late round, I'm talking about after round 12, if you don't have your tight end first tight end until round 12, one of the only builds that has consistently returned above average, uh, um, advance rates has been drafting four late round tight ends. And I think a lot of people will balk at the idea of taking four tight ends because you're using four out of your 18 roster spots on what people consider a low scoring, unpredictable position. Um, but with those late round guys, it gives us a chance to have not only a tight end by committee, but maximize the chances of one of them hitting. So uh, don't overlook that. As far as the two to three tight end builds, I mean, it's basically just, are you spending a lot or are you not? Um, and, and, you know, kind of hoping for the best. And when I say top five, top six, yes, that's what I mean by ADP. That's how mm -hmm. we decide right, right. what is strong and what is not. There, there are two points that, that TJ made that I want to reemphasize because I think they're, they're very important is attaching players to some of these roster builds is huge. The last several years, elite tight end has worked, but in reality, drafting Travis Kelsey has worked like drafting other elite tight ends has not been a great strategy, but if you had Travis Kelsey on your team, you, you were pretty set off. The other part he mentioned is again, with the, with the four tight end build, if you're doing that, let's say you're drafting your last four picks with four tight ends, you are going to have to most likely reach on a tight end relative to ADP in one of those picks. And so it's one of those things where if you've reached the 12th or 13th round and you haven't done it, you shouldn't just draft two tight ends because you're sacrificing ADP value. You've put yourself essentially in a position and not a bad one where you have to focus on those specific that, excuse me, that specific position. And you need to, to reach a little bit to, to do that. And, and on the flip side of that, you know, if you get tempted to draft another running back or, or, or quarterback, whatever, the reason you've done that, or, you know, that you're in that position is that you've spent your most valuable draft capital on these other positions. So adding a third quarterback or a, a sixth running back is not going to make as much of a difference as adding a, a third or fourth tight end. And I think the other big part with the tight end position is you, you're not going to find the next Travis Kelsey in those rounds. What you're trying to do is build the next Travis Kelsey by having a bunch of players who can have spike weeks at different times at the same times or whatever in a way that you're gaining as much ground on the the kelsey teams so that you can do it uh this is completely anecdotal and we're only looking at four rosters from hundreds of thousands of rosters over the last three years but if we look at all three best ball mania champions as well as last year's um regular season champion all four of those rosters were two tight end builds, and one of those was a non-elite tight end build. So at least from the biggest winners, um, we haven't seen one dedicate three roster spots to tight end yet. And, and I think, sorry, I, I keep cutting people off, but I think 
and I don't, I don't know what those rosters look like off the top of my head, but you need to, you know, I know with Pat's team last year, he had a bunch of other stuff that both went well for him and that he kept in mind when constructing his roster. Yeah. He had the week 17 game stacks. He had, you know, the, the running back in Eckler that just had a fantastic season. So you need to take that context in, into account and you're not going to be able to do that with every single roster. But if you do get to some of these extreme sample sizes where you have, you know, 50 different teams trying to figure out what else they might've done right in those builds to be able to have a three or four tight end build work yeah. for them. And that's, that's kind of should be the, the, the biggest takeaway is that like, all of these things should be working together. Like we, we shouldn't be taking one of these things and letting them dominate our best ball mania strategy. We're, we're trying to fit um, ADP value, roster construction, stacking um, all into every single draft and letting the draft kind of dictate which one is the most important, not going into it thinking that this is what I'm going to do in this draft um, and for most of my drafts. I think the perfect analogy of that is George Kittle and Pat's lineup because yes, it took luck for DJ Debo Samuel to get injured. And then for George Kittle to lead the 49ers with a 24% target share and average seven more points per game. But at the same time, Pat had to put himself in that position with the winning lineup by taking Kittle early in ADP and then building two tight ends just to hold down overall roster construction. So that's what it takes to be a winning team. Um, also, that is my argument that I feel like no one's talking about for Kyle Pitts is that, as we've already discussed, if we need three to four wide receivers by round seven and running backs, the stronger running backs, even the dead zone, even though it's based on ADP, are continuing to get pushed down since wide receivers are moving up the board, I can't waste a pick on Kyle Pitts on round six. That doesn't make sense for builds whatsoever. I need to take a wide receiver and a running back at that spot. So yet another argument for John U. Smith's backup. Paulson, what are your thoughts on some late round tight ends if people were to wait for these three, four tight end builds and round 14 on? Yeah, I think regular followers, readers know that I'm an advocate, a very strong advocate for early tight end. I think it just offers you so much uh, positional uh, edge uh, just in a regular league. I mean, I I don't follow the advanced rates and, and best ball, but I know what I'm going to do this year is I'm going to really try to get Kelsey Andrews, Hawkinson, or Kittle on my roster because they're big parts, and we know they're going to be big parts of their respective offenses, and they play in productive offenses. That gives you a huge value, uh, edge over the rest of your competition in your league. Uh, you can make a case that Kelsey should be the number one overall pick based on what he did last year relative to the rest of the field. But I would I would note that Mark Andrews two two seasons ago was the number one tight end, outscored Kelsey by thirty five points or so. Uh, it did take uh, an injury to Lamar Jackson. He's a little bit better without Lamar Jackson than he is with Lamar Jackson, which is an interesting thing there. But he's a really talented player. Hawkinson's talented. Kittle's really talented. And then there's this group, Dallas Goddard, Darren Waller, Evan Ingram, uh, David Njoku, who I think uh, we can agree that if they all stay healthy, they'll, they're will they going to be pretty good. They're going to be middle of the road tight end ones with some little bit of potential to finish top three or four if there's an injury to one of these other guys I was talking about. Then we get into Kyle Pitts at nine. I don't like. I don't feel comfortable with that based on uh, what Arthur Smith has done with him. Arthur did come out and say that Pitts was dealing with some things last year and that's going to have a better year. But we just 
seem to be keep we keep waiting on this to happen and i don't think this uh offense is strong enough to support him and drake london and Bijan robinson all his fantasy studs so this gets me to my tight end 10 which is tyler higby who i think is drastically underpriced right now i don't know if he's going tight end 16 or something like that um yes tight end 16 he saw 108 targets last year uh, Stafford missed part of the season uh, with just what happened at receiver for them. I mean, they've got Van Jefferson likely is the wide receiver two, uh, two, two Atwell, uh, Ben Skorneck, uh Like, I don't even know how to pronounce his name properly. This is how many targets he's going to get. I mean, he's going to be involved, but I mean, Higby should see hundred plus, targets again if you're getting that as a tight end 16 off the board i think that's tremendous value so i guess what i'm going to do is maybe he's my tight end too or if i if i'm if i don't get one of these other guys early then he's going to be my tight end one and i'm just going to have to try to build around around him um i think from a value standpoint he's there there's some upside guys pat freermuth if this pittsburgh offense passing attack can get any better uh he might be interesting greg dolchich i think with this uh, Denver passing attack, probably taking a step forward with Sean Payton. Uh, maybe he can resurrect uh, Russell Wilson a little bit. And uh, Chig Okonkwo for, for the Titans, you know, the number two passing option there, receiving option there behind Traylon Burks, perhaps. Uh, and then D- Dalton Schultz is like the last guy I'm sort of semi-confident is going to see a lot of a lot of targets. So I'm going to go early, but those are the other guys that uh, I'm going to look at if if I'm either looking for a tight end two, trying to build a two tight end, committee uh, i just think there's just a handful of guys that you really have a lot of faith in this year also one really one really fun thing to do is if you're scrambling for a stack um and you're at like the 12 13 turn you could just go higby stafford and then just tilt the hell out of the cup owner that was thinking he had stafford coming to him also for those that are, are currently pushing sam laporta luke musgrave and michael mayer of the board just note that 46 tight ends have been drafted on day two, the second and third round since 2011. And only five out of those 46 has finished the year top 24 in points per game. Nothing I want to be a part of while everyone else drafts those players. TJ, before we move into final roster construction, any thoughts on optimal stacking for these teams? Like, do we have an edge if we go quarterback, running back, wide receiver? You've already mentioned earlier in the show, you like adding on wide receiver threes that are ambiguous. Any other thoughts like that for unique stacking? Um, I would say that we have seen some data that suggests spending um, high value running back picks um, included in stack has not been very optimal like again that is like in dfs you can go like running back in a passing game and just try hope to get all the points in that one game we haven't really seen a lot of success from running back stacked with their pass catchers um i I will say that we have typically seen wide receiver fours outperform wide receiver threes in stacks again I, i think that comes a little bit just with us being bad at projecting the bottom of rosters uh and then smaller um non-quarterback stacks i think is one way to get unique uh uh, you know if you have week 17 stacks that you're looking for and you do have um a wide receiver uh from a game but can't get a quarterback uh you can just throw in a wide receiver from the other um 
from the other team uh, in the week 17 game, but, but typically not forcing uh, these early round stacks. If they fall to you, that's great. Um, but not forcing them and kind of letting those later round stacks come to you. We now know when to draft, why we're prioritizing week 17 in the playoffs, how many to draft at each position. But in terms of moving on and advance rates, Sam, are there any ideal builds for you that you're leaning on currently that come to mind? I think, I, I don't know if there are any ideal builds right now. It, it's more about taking the right stances with the positional allocation. And not that you need to go to the extremes, but if if you're at round five and you don't have a running back, not feeling like you need to sort of take a running back there because you don't have one yet um, or not sort of beholding yourself to the ADP as well. And I think the big part of all this is again, drafting like you're right at this point, targeting the, the uncertainty in the, the late round drafts. I mean, I think there are important ways to attack those final couple rounds. And again, trying to target the guys that could rise in ADP as well. So I think personally, if I had to choose one roster construction that I'm going with, the rest of the year let me see if this math works out it would be two quarterbacks probably five running backs eight receivers and three tight ends does that math work out two five eight three is one of the four roster constructions that has been above average advance rate in all three tournaments i was hoping you were going to say above and not below um but it's you know it because i don't think the quarterbacks, I think you can mix and match, you know, two middle round ones. You can do uh, an, an elite and a very late round one. The the three you could do, you know, a, a Kittle, Pitts, and and two late round ones or three late round ones, t- stuff like that. And it gives you the most flexibility. Now, I'm never going to – I don't think you should ever go into a draft thinking, again, I'm going to build a two five eight three roster get to the fourth round see sort of where your team is at and then build from that and and use that as sort of your stepping stone to say okay i've got four wide receivers if i take two more i'm i'm probably set and then i can unclick the wide receiver button and focus on the rest of these positions tj Using the free roster construction tool that Sam is referring to on the site, what other builds are coming out as above expectation options for you? Yeah, it'll be easiest for um, listeners to go look at the article on the roster construction to visualize this. There's um, an article called Underdog Best Ball Mania 4 Strategy Roster Construction. Um, But as Sam mentioned, two, five, eight, three, that's two quarterbacks, five running backs, eight wide receivers, three tight ends is one of four builds that has um, returned above average um, advance rate in all three tournaments. The other three being two, six, seven, three, two, six, eight, two, three, five, seven, three. Now, again, we're not going into our drafts just thinking like this is exactly how we need to be building. Um, but those are the parameters for what the vast majority of our uh, 
um, builds should be looking like. If after, say, 20 drafts, you don't have a lot of builds that fall into those roster constrictions, you probably need to revisit your strategy. You're probably spending too much capital um, on, on a position for whatever reason or drafting too timidly. Uh, so go look at the article. Look at those constructions. Um, there are extreme constructions that we're going to fall into here and there. That is okay. I think one really interesting note. Um, one build that has been used at an extremely high rate that has shown very poor results is 3582. Um, I, I don't really know the reason for that, but it's been one of the most popular builds and it is advanced below expectation in all three tournaments. Um, so uh, just be aware of these things. I, I do think some of these more extreme builds are um, going to be really favorable. Like again, these zero running back 2772 builds are uh, probably going to be my favorite. Don't confuse favorite with most frequently used. Like the fields used in these type of builds like less than 5% of the time. So you don't need to be using them a lot, but just being aware when they fall into your lap, they are really nice um, bills to have. I, I think... think. Go ahead. Well, I was about to wrap up the show, so no, you go. Oh, ahead. okay. I so I think the so the last point I'll make is roster construction builds, and to TJ's point, the sort of the frequency or exposure you have to roster construction builds sort of depends on how many uh, entries you're going to have into BBM. I know I'm only going to have 20 to 25 uh, entries into BBM. So I'm never going to have like a four quarterback build. I would probably never, even if I had 150, have a four quarterback build or have a five tight end build. Those are very extreme builds where I think people galaxy brain them a little bit too much in you're sacrificing expected value for uniqueness in that scenario. And the trade-off to me is not that big, but considering again, how much, how many times you are entering so that if you do want to push, if you do have 150 entries that you're going to have, you can push the boundaries a little bit on, you know, four to five of those builds. But if you only have 20 entries that you're going to have, Spending out on one or two is probably not, I don't think, the right way to go about it. Now, you still want to take your stances, draft as if you're playing, or excuse me, if you're if you're drafting right. But consider, again, how many entrant, entries you have. Again, if you're doing 150 and you're, let's say, 20 in at this point, and all of your roster builds are 2583, you don't need to avoid 2583 for the rest of the summer. I think things will even themselves out. ADPs will change enough that you'll be forced to change how you're building things. You'll get other draft slots too, which is going to impact your build as well. And, and thinking about all those sorts of things is, is very important. TJ, any final thoughts on best ball strategies? Um, read all of our articles and look at all of our rankings on four for four and it'll, it'll wrap up everything we've said here. Um, um, everything is draft by draft. Uh, we shouldn't be going to any draft with, um, an idea of how that draft's going to go. Paulson. Yeah. I don't have any further thoughts on best ball. Just look for the, uh, offensive line article. I, I just worked on and submitted. It's uh, I don't, uh, it's a kind of a unique way to look at it. I, I, I tally up the free agency money in and out for every, team on the offensive line and add in the uh 
the, the player capital used, uh, draft capital used uh, for the first three rounds of the draft as well to, to kind of look at this underappreciated, uh, underutilized uh, offensive line angle when it comes to uh, ranking offenses and running backs and receivers and passing games, et cetera. As TJ mentioned, check out everything on the site, especially over Memorial Day weekend, whenever everything still has an early bird sale tacked onto it. And keep an eye on those comments, because last week's episode, we held a listener competition, and all of those who you who participated, one, we appreciate, and two, we will reach out to asking for your email for that free sub for the one winner. So thank you to Sam, TJ, Paulson, as always. Until next week be a little bit kinder than what's required. We'll see you next time.